Hello, and welcome to another episode of Black Atlantic. My name is Clinton Davis with Hilary LeBlanc. Uh, and if you watch our show, you know that you can always be in for anything. Absolute jokes and laughs, absolute entertainment, um, guest interviews, and sometimes slightly more serious and somber topics. Uh, this will be one of those episodes. Um... That's going to be the only joke this episode. <laughs> it's us starting the intro a little too soon. Probably not. Um, hopefully not. Um, but before we get into anything, um, we I will start with our land acknowledgement, which uh, is a two-part land acknowledgement because uh, Clinton is on the unceded territory um, of the Wallistikik uh, Maliseet, whose ancestors, along with the Mi'kmaq and Peskotomakati tribes, signed peace and friendship treaties with the British Crown in the 1700s, also known currently as New Brunswick. Um, and let me just find... Why don't I have both open? Here we go. Um, and I would like to acknowledge that I am on the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people, a.k.a. Trana. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, Say, but I mean, Clinton sort of said it at the start. Um, if you're watching this, you've already seen our title, um, and that we're going to get into, um, I think one of our heavier topics, um, the current conflict between Gaza and Israel. And, um, Clinton and I discussed this before, and I guess, like, you could say all of our episodes have some amount of trauma because there's always racialized trauma and black trauma and we've talked about so many issues of violence and shootings the murder of george floyd etc cetera, etc cetera. but i do want to take a moment to recognize that this topic is going to be very heavy to listen to for a lot of people and sometimes sometimes i want to listen to something to find the joy outside of those topics and um we've decided to discuss this so it will be our last topic of the day, but just a heads up, if this conversation might make you uncomfortable, um, listen to the first half and leave, or or don't listen after the statement, um, though we wish you would stay. <laughs> but um, yeah, that's what we're going to be discussing today, along with some other things like Clinton. What did we get up to this weekend? Well, um, this was a great weekend for us. Um mm -hmm. Hillary uh, and I often joke about the switcheroo we did. I grew up in Toronto. I live in New Brunswick now. She grew up in New Brunswick now. She lives in Toronto. Um, it's actually been very beneficial to have a business partner in the city of Toronto as well. Uh, it's given us opportunities there and connected us with uh, some really uh, influential people. But um, Hillary has also had many opportunities to come to New Brunswick in uh, this year because of what we do here. And uh, this was one of those weekends. It was an intensely packed weekend where, uh, first and foremost, we were contracted to give a two-hour panel, uh, which is something we've never done before, um, on the history of the KKK in New Brunswick, as well as Black communities and the hundreds of years of Black communities uh, that have been here. Uh, if you watched our last episode, it was a bit different. We did live stream it to TikTok. Uh, we had a heck of a time getting set up to our YouTube channel. It didn't work, so we deleted those videos. We took the TikTok video and downloaded it, but we didn't really have the mic thing right. But uh, it's still very listenable, too. We did a huge amount of research on this topic over the past couple of years. And while we're not historians, um, we hope we uh, open some eyes and uh, 
did a did a did a fairly good job based on uh, the capacity we had. If you hadn't checked it out, if you're interested in, I think that you should. But uh, yeah, so we spent two hours. I'll let you talk about Music Week. Um, we spent two hours at the Moncton Library, given a panel. We were so happy to have Babalu Ai and Tanya from Black Rose Nation drive uh, from St. John, well, from Halifax after seeing Michelle Obama. We met a lot of friends for the first time this weekend, which I think Hillary's going to get into and made some new ones. So that was the first part. And because I feel like I've been talking for a couple of minutes, why don't you tell the people about what else we did this past I weekend? I just want to highlight about the talk too, before we move on that, like, I just want to say to anyone who's maybe curious, I found it very fascinating, although not super surprising that the majority of the people in the audience were white. I appreciated mm-hmm. their allyship, engagement, willing to learn and listen and share anecdotes as well. Um, I would say that it did seem like the majority of them were from the Acadian community. And I think we've talked a lot about this, like sharing of the pie of resources when you are a minority community and the fact that the Acadians while language minorities are not visible minorities. And so I really appreciated the fact that these people came and wanted to learn the history of Black people in their community and share in, you know, sort of hearing of the atrocities of the KKK. And then they ended up learning a lot about the fact that the KKK hated the Acadians too, and we were all one in the same. But Music New Brunswick was uh, so much fun, and I think I'm still a little speechless over how great this weekend was. Um and the second part of our contracted ob- obligations was to each be part of two panels. Um, I uh, was a guest on one spearheaded by the team at CBC um, East Coast Music Hour, as well as a gentleman on a um, special CBC music show called Reclaim that is about Indigenous music. And then I got to moderate a conversation about podcasting best practices that Clinton sat on, along with uh, Jeff Boudreau of Sarastalakab and Darcy Walsh of East, uh, East Coast Music DNA. East Coast Coast. DNA. I thought it it might be East Coast Music DNA. About music. Yeah, I think it's East Coast DNA and it's about music. But um, it was really exciting. I felt a little apprehensive because of my lack of music knowledge. I was really excited that Music New Brunswick is trying to sort of fuse journalistic standards and practices, podcasting and music all together so that we could be a part of it. So that was really great. Um, Clinton was also on a second panel about podcasting immediately after the first one that we did. Um, And yeah, in terms of people we got to see, I mean, I finally get to, we finally get to meet Dee Hernandez in person. Um, we get to hang out with 180 again. It was the first time I got to meet Michael J. Fox and his partner, Sin, uh, Sydney. Um, and then who else? We got to hang out with Tondue McCarthy. And there will be an upcoming podcast episode with him. And um, we got to see Gary Weeks, who we've interviewed in the past. Um, we got to meet and hang out with their friend, Aaliyah, who was so helpful and instrumental in, you know, setting up the content they created about us, the content we created created about them um I feel like I'm forgetting people but it was such a we had this like little black family amidst this very white English and Acadian music celebration but also got to share in those things as well and I thought that it was just a very nice coming together as well um it was very emotional for me and I was really happy to be a part of it yeah, it was really uplifting, that's for sure. Um, no, I think you got everyone else. We, we met a really prolific visual author, author artist right at the very end named Rothschild, uh, who I think mm-hmm. we'll have on the panel in the future. Uh, I checked out some of his art and it's Thanks. 
it's fascinating. It's really good. Uh, yeah, so we had uh, a nice community, and you know, I, I we did the second panel about music and podcasting, why it's important for musicians to be on podcasts, as well as you know, the question: Should musicians just start their own podcast because it's just a, a great way to connect with fans? Um, I don't, I didn't see any reason for you to be apprehensive about being there because you know. To be honest, other than the one photographer, all the different podcasters that were present, they were really the only media that was there. They were the only, uh, sorry, there was CBC, um, but they were the only really media on site. We were the ones filming, recording, taking videos, posting to our social media channels and tagging. So um, there was really an added benefit of coverage during that weekend. I will say that there was probably more diversity representation uh, during this New Brunswick Music Week than ever before in history. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, I can't speak to why over the decades um, there hadn't been more of an effort, but to the current team there doing what they're doing, um, it's definitely there and it's definitely growing. Uh, I believe they will continue to learn from this event, and mm-hmm. you know, I do have questions. Uh, that I'd like to pose to them specifically and not discuss here. But uh, overall, it was uh, it was wonderful. We are both, I'm so grateful to have been a part of it. Uh, you know, I met and forged connections that I think will help me in what we're doing here with podcasting, uh, as well as music as well. Even like um, Andrew Marshall from the east coast country music association yes. Yes. like we we really bonded and uh i'd say we're now really close friends with uh the guy from east coast dna um yeah. he kept calling himself a nerd but the truth is i'm a major nerd i just try to disguise it <laughs> so uh, i really bonded with him and uh yeah yeah i am looking forward to more opportunities and uh you know i'm hoping to Hoping to see, you know, I try to remain optimistic. I'm hoping to see a much brighter future and more inclusive. I, I recognize that, you know, black people probably make up only two to three percent of New Brunswick's entire population. Uh, but when it mm-hmm. comes to the music industry, we've, you know, we've always been a domineering force, and it's great that we're being included more now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I met uh, a really amazing indigenous person named Summer Breeze who had some very insightful things to educate me on that I'd like to talk about in the future. Well, we're at ten minutes already, and. Uh, yeah, yeah, that was my takeaway. I think we're both kind of floating right now from a yeah. I think the just of the weekend. To piggyback on only a few of the things that you said, I think like obviously it was so positive that Music New Brunswick. If you're listening, we would like to be part of it again. And I just think that I have other than like maybe what your questions might be for them. I definitely have some ideas moving forward of how we can like further work with them and other things that we could be doing. So very excited to continue that conversation and hopefully be there in future years and um, happy to be part of their diversification. Um, I I'm ha- I cited that a lot when I went to UDM uh, now wild like six years ago um I just remember thinking that it was very very white and very Acadian and while it is still those things I do see the effort being put in and I applaud that there is effort and would be happy to be part of you know continuing to grow those efforts so kudos to Don and Jean the people involved and the people who brought me in and um I definitely feel like our Elise who I absolutely love who you got to meet because we'd worked together for a group of feminists I wouldn't be surprised if she had a hand in um 
um, recommending our work. So thank you to everyone. And thanks to everyone we got to meet. Y'all were super cool. <laughs> it could be. Yeah, it could be. It could be people like 180. I know I've been a, a juror twice now. Um for their awards and um no you're right and i was very conscious when i was speaking about uh, the fact that I, music can be maybe listening to my words and i hope they are and uh, I'm, I'm not i'm not criticizing them i, I truly want to come to them and talk to them about a few things and I'll, I'll just say what it was because i don't want the audience to be confused no i just think it had to do a little bit with the the sound quality uh, of some of the rappers that were on the stage maybe just probably a lack of exposure and experience from some of the people responsible for the mixing i noticed that like rappers didn't have a light show uh they didn't have like the fancy lights and or smoke going on and the other bands did i noticed that um that some of the latin music and the rap it just it didn't just wasn't mixed the same it didn't come through as loud in the speakers uh, and that's all it's all constructive criticism and i hope that us being there and you know the more that's the more they include diverse voices they're just going to keep growing into a more inclusive organization yeah so yeah don and Dom, and Jean, and Christine, and Elise. Yeah, um, it was cool. It was a really cool event. So I guess we're talking about this for longer than I wanted, but that, so could just imagine for next year if you attend this event, like $50 for the conferences, $20 for the showcase, $25 for the showcase passes. Uh, and if you just even got the showcase passes, within a two-day period, uh, I think we saw 19 different wow. musical groups in new brunswick over a span of 14 hours i mean yeah. the amount i learned about musicians in new brunswick the amount of amazing talent i took in uh the quality of it the diversity uh, and, and yeah an event like this is going to be way better mixed than like some underground bar and uh no the, the, it's inarguable value for i recommend anyone to attend these events next year and our conferences. I hope hopefully we're there again. Yeah, I absolutely would love to, you know, host more, be on more with you, do more work with like CBC in that space as well and see what we can what we can do moving forward. And if there's any partnerships with anything, we might have cooking up in the back end too. So we shall see. We shall see. But to be to be determined. Um uh, on to uh sadder horizons. Um I feel like the, for the rest of this episode, Clinton, I'm going to let you educate me on things that are going on in the world. And I'm going to try to react as compassionately as I can. Yeah. So um, Hillary and I discussed that. Uh, I don't, I don't want to speak for you, but I months ago, like even though we do this, uh, we know everything going on with Bill C-18 and the difficulty in accessing news. Um, accessing the news all the time is hard. Um, you know, the news doesn't thrive on positive, happy-go-lucky stuff because that doesn't get the clicks and the traction. Uh, so there was a period earlier this year where I didn't consume any news whatsoever for months. I needed to pull away from it. And you recently discussed with me that you hadn't been consuming news yourself. And I think that's incredibly healthy. Um, it's good to be educated and aware of what's going on in the world, but it can also be crippling and depressing. Uh, and it can affect your ability to have your own state of mental health. And it can easily be argued that, you know, how can we sit silent when other people around the world uh, are being oppressed? And I don't have a good answer for that. But uh, I just know that when it comes to personal mental health, that's important as well. So many people have been killed in the States since George Floyd's murder. Many white people 
and many black people have been killed by police. Um, a certain percentage of those people killed were unarmed. Uh, a certain percentage of those people, you know, they're probably killed as a result of improper training, racism, prejudices, or just power tripping police officers. Um, but on October 16th, 2023, a gentleman named Leonard Cure was a gentleman who had been wrongfully convicted of a crime he was later cleared of uh, and spent 16 years of his life in jail, uh, was released. I believe he was offered some form of financial compensation. I um, think um, the article you sent said $817,000. Yep, which, again, I'd rather have the 16 years of my life. Yeah, um, I don't think 817000 equates to 16 years of life. Go on. Absolutely not. Yeah. Um, I've seen this reel floating around social media lately about this guy asking people on the street, like, what would you say if I give you $10, $10 million? Would you want it? Would you take it? And everyone's like, oh, yeah, 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 of course. Um, but then what if I said, I'm going to give you this $10 million and you have to spend it all in one day because if you take the money, you're not going to wake up tomorrow. Like, this is the last day of your life. And, you know, no one wants that $10 million. Uh, and so the, the point of the reel is that, okay, so what you're saying, that simply waking up every day of your life is worth more than $10 million to you and, and how important it is to wake up and obviously how important it is in this case to be free. So this man was released from prison. He was pulled over for speeding in the state of Georgia. Um, I did watch the majority of the video of the confrontation. Uh, not all of it. It's half hour from different angles. And to be honest, I still haven't watched the 10 minute killing of George Floyd because I don't want to. I've only seen like a one minute clip. But what I did see was the police officer um, very aggressively uh, yelling out, uh, telling the man to get out of the car, very aggressively approaching the vehicle, uh, at which point a brief argument took place. Um, he said he told Leonard Cure he was being arrested, at which point, you know, he he argued and said he shouldn't be arrested. He argued if I was speeding, uh, then give me a speeding ticket and that should be it. Um, almost from the beginning of the confrontation, um, the officer pulled his taser and had it focused on him. Uh, at some point, Leonard Cure complied. He put his hands on the vehicle as he was supposed to, and he was angry. Uh, and let me interject that, you know, there is an unmeasurable amount of PTSD associated with being wrongfully convicted for armed robbery in 1969, you know, civil rights era, uh, and spending like a huge percentage of your life in jail and then being told by a police officer that you're going to be arrested for speeding. Um, so I can't speak for him. I don't know what kind of trauma responses he was having. I know nothing about the individual himself. What I do know is that he was complying albeit he was upset. And in the video, he has his back to the police officer and he simply just puts his left hand slowly straight up in the air. And for some reason, that was enough for the police officer to uh, discharge his taser into the man's back. Um, 
tasers aren't as effective as you think at times, especially when adrenaline is rushing. Uh, Cure then turned around, ran up to the police officer. A struggle ensued. I did see that, you know, Leonard had his hands on the police officer's face and possibly neck. I did see that the police officer attempted to hit him at the side with a baton multiple times. Uh, And then I did see that the police officer shot Leonard Cure. Um, This police officer is his name in the thing. He He was previously fired from a different police department for for violence, for unnecessarily violence. Um, I don't know if there's a shortage of police in the States. I don't know why people are just transferred to other departments. Um, like it makes me think of like the Catholic school just transferring popes around after like abusing children instead of dealing with the situation. They just take them out of the city and put them somewhere else. You know, I don't know why how you'd be fired from one police department and hired from another, hired to another. Um, but so Leonard Cure died after spending 16 years wrongfully imprisoned in America and simply exercising his right to be angry. Like I've seen many white people do in videos and not be killed, uh, being angry over the prospect of being arrested, especially when a police officer, he was speeding. He was speeding, that's for sure. He was going way too fast. But to just walk up to the car screaming aggressively, telling him like, you're going to be arrested, telling him you're going to jail. I can't condone his attacking the police officer. I've never been shot with a taser. But after he, yeah, he was shot with the taser. He he ran to the police officer, a fight ensued, and so he was he was shot dead. Um. So that's what happened. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I just want to clarify one thing that you said because it sounded like you said that he was arrested in like this 1969 civil rights movement era. Um, but he was arrested in 2003. Oh, 2003. Um, Thank you. He might have been Thank born you. in that era. Uh, born in 69. Yep. Yeah. Arrested in 2003, released in 2020, and therefore yep. had only been out for the, the past three years. Um, to then yep. and then, you know, shot. Um, you, you touched on what I was going to say, which was like, I cannot imagine the trauma of even like seeing a police car after having spent 16 years in jail, let alone um, having to interact with one and to try to um, fight for your rights while probably having a trauma response and very afraid. And in, in this moment, um, I definitely don't think that, you know, speeding is obviously a crime. And I definitely don't think that fighting with the police officer was um, necessarily wise, but it sounds obvious to me that this um, police officer one having been fired in the past is uh, extremely problematic. And it makes no sense why this person would be hired again. Furthermore, um, I don't understand the level of hostility around a speeding ticket. Like that's typically protocol to then arrest someone for something like that makes no sense. And it completely sounds racially motivated to me. Um, And then, you know, to shoot someone um, and kill them before ever getting to a place of, you know, arresting prosecution, anything like I don't. I have a hard time believing that this police officer actually thought his life was in danger to then be 
um, pulling a gun on this black man who's now dead. Um, I think it's really, really sad. I'm tired of always saying that these stories are really, really sad because we keep getting these same stories. Um, I think it's just extremely frustrating that it feels like there's no change coming um, and that we're still being met with the same kind of um, murder, uh, specific, more specifically in the States, uh, towards Black people. Um, I can't imagine... Like, it's just so sad to have spent 16 years in prison, which, by the way, the article breaks down the $817,000 is only a little bit over $50,000 a year for your life. Um, so, really, to say that your your each year of your life is only worth 50 k is so, um, it's crazy. That's crazy. Um, it's just so sad. It's just so sad. Yeah. So uh, the the police officer's name was Buck Aldridge. Uh, actually, let me just go back up to the top here. And he was arrested. Am I frozen? Yes. Can you still hear me? I can still hear you. I'm probably frozen though. Yeah. Can you see me? You're okay. frozen. Uh, it's frozen on my end. Yeah. I am frozen. Oh, okay. So uh, my whole browser just froze up. But Buck Aldridge, he was... Uh, fired in 2017 for using excessive force during a traffic stop. Mm-hmm. He was rehired and, and now a man is dead. Mm-hmm. Again, you know, this man was angry. He had his back turned to the police officer. He raised his hand in the air with his back turned to the police officer, he possibly was ref- he was refusing to put his hands behind his back because he hadn't yet accepted that the justification for his being arrested. Uh, and then he was killed. Yeah, no, there's no amount of money that can compensate for for fifty six for sixteen years of your life. And yeah, the very real fact is, you know, there's no amount of money that you could mm-hmm. offer me that would that would let me be okay with not waking up tomorrow <laughs> yeah uh which is yeah what happened here i am um, gonna can you pause it uh yeah um the other thing that i wanted to add is that i to your point about like the right to be angry it just feels like that's something black people are always like persecuted for either in real scenarios or like persecuted in the sense of like Black athletes aren't allowed to get mad on the court. How many times have we heard of Serena Williams, Venus Williams, other, you know, tennis players getting mad at like bad ref calls and just pointing out issues and then getting um, mocked for being, you know, the angry black woman or told that they're being unprofessional. And in this very real setting where you're allowed to be one, having a trauma response and two, angry because you're being pulled over for something you're legitimately doing, but then having your treatment be so wildly inappropriate that you would be, I think, entitled to being angry. And I do think that, like, I think to me what's crazy, the whole story is crazy, but what what I think is crazy to me is that, like, no one's going to ever be happy to see the police. Like, I would not, as a police officer, be 
expect to be met with joy because I am about to reprimand somebody for something that they are doing, or I am instilling fear in them that they are about to have a fine, get arrested or something. I get afraid of seeing the cops even when I forget that I'm black and I'm not even doing something wrong, I inherently do not like them. It is in my DNA to be concerned. And so I don't know what person is ever going to get pulled over and isn't going to feel annoyed, inconvenienced, uncomfortable. And so like, are they expecting someone to hand them a Tim Hortons coffee and a donut and be so happy to see them get a fucking speeding ticket? That's not the reality. And I, it goes back again. Now I'm mad. It goes back again to this idea that they need proper training and to be of a specific psychological cognitive ability and mindset to understand that no one likes you but hopefully your family no one you pull over is going to meet you with sunshine and roses and black people white people any person is allowed to be angry that you are about to hand them a speeding ticket a fine pull them over slow down their day etc that is so true uh and so well said yeah like no one's gonna hand you a tims right like you have to know that going into this job um you want them yeah i guess you expect if anyone wants to watch the video i mean don't watch it all and there's versions where there's no blood obviously or you don't see the actual shooting take place but yeah the man got a, and speeding can kill but at the point that the truck was pulled over um there was no one that was going to get pulled by his killed by his previous speeding that had already happened. Uh, and he was pulled over. And when the sirens went off, he pulled over like he was supposed to do. Um, so while there could be the adrenaline of the fear of someone being killed, by the time the police officer got out of the car, there was no one that had to be killed. Uh, and again, I've seen, man, I've seen these videos of white people going off on the cops, going off and nothing happening. So there's definitely like a racial. Yeah. In a world where we have like songs like fuck the police and sayings like all cops are bastards. Don't expect to be handed a dozen roses. No one likes you, man. Like yeah, you're taking a job or groups, you are the enemy. <laughs> and that's just not rap. Like metal <laughs> groups, punk bands, like rock band. They all say they, they all say the same stuff about the yes. police, right? Even country songs. I've heard a couple country songs recently that said say that. So this is not unilaterally unilaterally associated to black music either. Uh, Absolutely. Still like the cops. And uh, I will say to the surprise of many that you know, while I have been mistreated by a police officer, um, many of my encounters with the police have been relatively civil and um still if i see lights go off anywhere i get an instant trauma response and i'm afraid like i, I have a fear of like okay what am i doing am i doing anything wrong what do i need to do like do i need to check this or like and uh yeah so there have actually been many people killed in the states uh in the past three years that we we haven't even talked about because it happens all the time but this was a pretty big one this was a pretty big one because the officer has a history of being arrested for violence during a traffic stop and then hired in a different city and he's still doing traffic stops and he killed someone. Uh, and this man obviously had a reason, had a reason. This is why the argument comes up about like reallocate police funding in some cases, uh, because they do definitely need less like 
riot gear and more like social services training to realize that I'm, I may be approaching someone who is severely suffering from PTSD. And do I really need to be screaming at the top of my lungs at them to get out of the car that they're going to be arrested and like point the taser at them within 10 seconds. Yeah. Uh, So. And it it goes that way for a lot of the police encounters. Like I have talked about this before the community um, health centers that I've worked with that have released uh, reports showing that when dealing with the homeless people or precariously housed people, you don't need to be just moving them from location to location or condemning them because they don't have a home. Sometimes they just need a hug. Sometimes they're just mentally ill and to go in their literal guns a blazing and screaming because you think that's the best way to protect yourself is only creating a more hostile environment. So overall, I'm still of the position of abolish the police in the sense of that reallocate the funds for social services. Don't get rid of the police, but we don't need this many of them. What are we doing? Thank you for coming to my TED talk. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. We're going to, we're going to move on to our last topic of the episode. Okay. (laughs) So this is a hard topic to discuss. Um, like we like to remind people that we are not entertainers. Uh, sorry, very much entertainers. Uh, that we are not no, historians. We're not <laughs> we are also not news reporters, political analysts. Uh, and I can't say that I, I understand in enough detail the entire political spectrum of the Middle East or anywhere else in the world. Um, I will say uh there are people in my family who this affects. Uh, I will say that, you know, I have had my eyes glued to news sources and YouTube videos and TikTok content for weeks, not just Western media. I go to my way to uh, consume media from other countries. Um, you know, I think a lot of us had to read 1984 as, as children, and I'm fully aware of the propaganda machines of all nations. I know that in Russia, you know, the propaganda is pro-Russian, uh, and in the West, the propaganda is pro, pro-Western interests. Um, I also follow on Telegram uh, a channel called Military Beasts, uh, which is just packed full of, everyone has a cell phone. It's packed full of content from both sides of uh, the atrocities of war. Things posted by civilians, uh, things that I would certainly call war crimes, things I've seen, I've seen, I've seen brutal killings uh, of human beings on both sides. Um, We are a Black-centric podcast, and uh, I will say I've seen more of Killings on one side than the other. Uh, we are a black-centric podcast. And, uh, you know, I just, you know, I was challenged to discuss the parallels between some of the things happening uh, right now uh, and between black communities and black history. So I'm going to do my best to do that. And uh, Hillary, after I, I say every point, uh, please either chime in or, or feel free to say that you don't have anything to say about it. Um, obviously, anything is fine. Um, I do want to say, though, uh, before I start, that uh, I'm sure for many Israelis and Israel citizens, uh, both in Israel and around the world, uh, they have been taught, and again, here's where I say I'm not a political analyst, uh, that taught that they are surrounded uh, on all borders by, you know, 
darker skinned Middle Eastern Muslim Arab people who hate them and want to annihilate them and think they should all be eradicated. And that probably brings up a trauma response based on the atrocities that happened during World War II. Um, but I also think the black community shares a collective memory of systemic injustices similar to people in Gaza. I think there is a parallel between the situation taking place, uh, just based on well-known facts, not like uh, recent media news or sensationalism or reports, but just facts. Um, there was a Zionist movement created in the 1800s uh, in which the founder believed that uh, Israeli people deserved. It's weird when people say Jewish, because um, Jewish uh, kind of indicates of religion and not a group of people. Uh, and I wouldn't say it's so, we always say the Jews, but I, I would say that there are many people labeled as Jews who are not religious in the slightest sense at all. Uh, they just have a common heritage of coming from certain parts of the world. Uh, Hebrew is a language that no one speaks anymore. Um, and then there's Israeli citizens. So I think people always mix up those terms. But um, in the 1800s, there was a Zionist movement formed where the, the founder believed that uh, people of Jewish descent deserved their own land to live in. Um, at the time, Palestine was controlled by British occupation. Uh, they were colonizers in the region. Uh, and in 1918, uh, or 17 or 19, uh, after or during World War I, um, I believe it was Lord Rothschild who had declared that, you know, he agrees that. Um, uh, the Zionist movement deserves their own land. There was growing fears for their well-being. I know the Nazi party came into existence in Germany decades before World War II started. Um, so he had mentioned something about people of Jewish origin getting part of Palestine. After World War II in 1940. Between 1947 and 1949, the UN proposed a partition plan leading to the declaration of the state of Israel um, in the region of Palestine, where Palestinians have existed for thousands and thousands of years, uh, just as long as everyone else. And I will say there are Jewish Palestinians, there are Palestinian Israelis, there are Christian people living in Gaza, there are there used to be Jewish people living in Gaza. Uh, I know that in Canada there are many Jewish uh, origin and Palestinian people married and the high school I grew up in, you know, everyone here, they're all friends. Um, but anyways, so they were given their land. It was supposed to be a two state solution. Uh, I do believe there was some upset from Palestinians about, um, them getting less land and everyone likes to dwell on that. Uh, in 1948, Israel declared themselves their own independent state, uh, in, Arab-Israeli war ensued, and at that point, about 750 Palestinians were removed from their generational homes, and they were not allowed to return. Uh, this was called the Nakba, uh, which is like the Great Catastrophe. There have been many wars since then. There was a 1967 Six-Day War in which Israel occupied the Gaza Strip. Um, from 1987 to 1993, there was the first Intifada, uh, which was a Palestinian uprising against Israeli occupation. Uh, uh, they were called the PLO, and it was during this period in 1988 that Israel helped to form Hamas, uh, similar to America and the Taliban. Um, you know, they helped form Hamas to fight the other organization that was fighting against him. Anyways, in 1990, 
In 2005, Israel unilaterally disengaged from Gaza, but they maintained control over their borders and airspace. So again, this is a fact. Gaza is completely encompassed, uh, and they're not recognized as a sovereign nation or a state. Uh, in fact, access to their water, fuel, electricity, internet, and uh, medical aid is all controlled by another nation. Um, and there's been conflict ever since. Uh, you know, Hamas took control over Gaza, leading to a blockade by Israel and Egypt. And there's been several conflicts over the years. And I just draw parallels because, you know, both Palestinian and African slaves underwent displacement. They were taken from their homes uh, and they, you know, they've lived under oppressive systems for, for decades and hundreds of years. Um, there is the segregation and the discrimination, which reminds me of the Jim Crow era. Um, in the late 19th century to the 1960s, where the segregation and discrimination fa faced by black individuals mirrored uh, the restrictions and separations placed by Palestinians in certain areas. I watched a video by a Jewish woman this week. She's married to a Palestinian, uh, and she says how she has free access to go anywhere she wants in Israel, um, but her husband doesn't have equal rights. He There's 500 different checkpoints in the West Bank. Uh, of course, you can't leave Gaza. You can't get into Gaza. It's a very heavily secured area. And um, yeah, there's a certain segregation that is is well documented and, and taking place and that no one is denying. I, I'm not saying anything that is uh, a rumor. Uh, no one's denying that these things are taking place. Um, the civil rights movement of the 1960s, um, you know, a struggle for equal rights uh, after hundreds of years of oppression um, also has clear parallels with the Palestinian struggle. And so I am reminding people, I am not attributing any reasons to why these things are taking place, um, but these things are taking place. Um, Palestinian people living in Gaza uh, are want the option to be free, to move around freely, to educate their kids, to build what they want to do and stuff like that. And then if you bring that to a modern era, there's, uh, there's still systemic injustice. And that's part of the reason why our podcast was formed. Um, just ongoing systemic injustices faced by black individuals in North America as and, and Palestinians. Um, and the activism and movements that arise, that have arisen to combat these injustices, you know, when the Black Lives Matter protests were taking pay place in the States, I just heavily recall black people and white people not being referred to as peaceful protesters, like Donald Trump called people in Charleston, um, but, you know, thugs, uh, terrorists, rioters, um, people causing civil unrest, people who don't want peace, people who are against civil order and peace. Uh, and I just, I find it chilling. Uh, I, there's, there's a lot of conflicts in the world right now. There are like things going on that we ignore in the West, you know, like we're done with Syria, there's Sudan, there's Congo. Um, there are numerous crises taking place in certain countries of Africa that, uh, just don't get the attention they deserve. Um, you could say that's, there's reasons for that. This because they're not allied or because they're not part of, uh, there's no oil there or other things like that. But uh, food for thought, definitely some interesting parallels between what's happening. And uh, again, without trying to give too many opinions, well, I, I think the loss of life is horrible. 
it is a well-documented fact, uh, and it's not denied by anyone, that uh, the people that live here in the most densely populated region of the entire planet um, resist. So, do you have any thoughts on that first point? Um, I think, well, I'm not that I suspect that anyone listening wouldn't know what is making us talk about this, but we've talked about the history of it, but what's happened, like, what is it Some last? People don't. Week? You're right. Wow. Yeah. Some so what happened yeah. last week is that uh, after all of these years of conflict, I I would say it must sort of have felt like a straw broke a camel's back, and Hamas, if I remember correctly, um, committed a terrorist attack and killed, I believe, 600 Israeli people, and then took 213 hostages. Um, and then mm -hmm. Israel declared war against Gaza and has been retaliating since. Um, uh, and I see that in our in our in our secret shared notes that you've got a list of some of the atrocities that have gone on um, from mosques destroyed and churches. Um, I, I've seen the footage of a lot of the hospitals that have been bombed. And I think the key takeaway is that of the. I think over 2 million people that live in the Gaza Strip, over half are children. And so what is happening is it, it's over 1 million children that are actually facing these, um, this, I guess you could say retaliation. And I think the point in trying to share this, um, very well said, by the way, very well said and highly educated, um, as highly educated as we can be. Um, analysis of the history is that uh, I know you said without sharing your opinion, but I will, I will, despite everything that I've said from back and forth with you in private, I will share my opinion that this conflict comes from years and years of conflict and occupation of Israel into Gaza. And that there are a lot of parallels that mirror a colonizer and oppressed um, person situation. And um, while I know with my entire being that this podcast is 100% condemning any of the violence that is occurring, it, it's hard to say that there isn't one, one instance that hasn't domino affected the other instance on either uh, side of this conflict. Um, and that's a little bit of what, what's happened in the last, I think, like, what, 10, 10 days. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, uh, I'm hesitant to call it a terrorist attack, although I'll, I'll certainly say that I, I feel that it was an, a, an act of terror. Um, I'm confused well, think, about how it happened. Um, well, I'm just, go ahead. I was just going to say that Canada legally recognizes Hamas as a terrorist organization. And I think that's why we call it a terrorist attack. Okay, um, but I, I I don't speak for Canada, and I don't I don't personally no, I'm... feel that it's I don't like I'm confused how it happened. I, I know that uh, Gaza is one of the most heavily guarded borders in the world um, at all times. I know that you can't come or go, and that you're just soldiers. And even when I went to Egypt nine years ago, I couldn't. There, every intersection had armed uh, officers, like with machine guns and, and, and jeeps, and uh, I just 
not only can I not understand how Hamas was able to train so well with constant surveillance over Gaza, which is a very small area, a couple hundred square kilometers, like paragliding into events and breaking through uh, fences and taking over bases that seem to have no guards in them. And I also don't know um, why it took the IDF between four to 10 hours to respond at all. Uh, in the multiple regions that were attacked. And, you know, those are questions that will have to be answered after this war is done. Uh, I actually don't also call it a war. Um, Gaza is not recognized as a sovereign state. So I don't know how you could go to war. It's like, it's like saying I, you know, I keep my kids trapped in a room. Not my kids. I keep another adult locked up and trapped in a room. And, you know... They tried to escape and they punched me in the face. So I put them back in the room and uh, I got all my buddies to come over. And now we're going to punish a person for trying to escape. Um, I'm going to, like I said, I'm going to do my best <laughs> to not give my opinion. And it's, it's, it's going to be hard. Um, that's one of the parallels I see. Yeah, you mentioned the mosque destroyed, churches destroyed, 59 attacks on healthcare hospitals. Uh, healthcare, 17 hospitals damaged. And this, this is this is actually directly from the United Nations. So again, I'm not I'm not saying anything that is radical. Mm -hmm. um, 180 educational facilities have been hit. 30% of all housing has been destroyed. Uh, and I think the more up-to-date number is close to 50%. So I don't know what the goal is. And I, I just think it's a bit of a disproportionate response at the moment. I don't think this kind of a response has resulted in the kind of peace uh, that is needed in the region either. Um, I don't know if I cut you off a couple of minutes ago. No, I was just I was just going to add that um, this ABC news article that sort of outlines a bit of the timeline says that on October 7th at 6.30 a.m., an estimated 2,200 rockets were fired towards southern and central Israel, including Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. And that's the statistics according to the Israel Defense Forces. Hamas October. actually claims. Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to say that Hamas actually claims that it was 5,000 rockets that they fired, but that they all landed in southern and central Israel. And then armed Hamas militants, many on motorcycles, storm blockaded areas of the Gaza Strip, shooting at Jewish settlers. Um, and then uh, shortly after that, attacks continued. And now it has obviously deeply escalated from there. But that is sort of, I guess, this initial timeline. Again, to your point, I'm not sure, it, like, knowing what we know about all of this intense surveillance and stuff, how this could have occurred under their nose. But um, that is sort of, I guess, the initial incident that catapulted all of this. Yeah, you're right. And I mean, one thing it's important to know is that rockets are not bombs. Uh, and, you know, motorcycles are not tanks and military jeeps. Like, the Hamas is fighting with very limited equipment. I know they have drones. I know most of those rockets didn't hit Israel because they have an amazing Iron Dome technology. But rockets are kind of just like throwing grenades that, you know, can go really far. Uh, they don't do anywhere near the damage of one bomb. And, uh, you know, within the first six days of this conflict, Israel dropped over 6,000 bombs on northern Gaza, which is more than any of the United Front forces during the entire 20-year uh, Afghanistan-Iraq conflict dropped in any given month anywhere. It's, it's just unparalleled, the amount of uh, um, bombs being dropped. 
the there's a sort of a tally thing on this article that says based on um, October 23rd, there were 1,400 dead in Israel with 4,629 injured. Um, but there's 5,087 people dead in Gaza with 15,273 people injured. 32 uh, Americans have been killed in Israel. Over a million Gaza residents have been displaced. There's 222 hostages taken by Hamas. Um and then there's uh, 300,000 Israeli reservists called up, I think, to fight. And then Hamas and Islamic Jihad fighters, there's 50,000, just to give some statistics. Um, okay. And to sort of answer your question about, in, in not my opinion, but I guess my thoughts and sort of what I was sharing with you before the show is that, like, I also have, you know, family that is, like, Muslim and could be you know, negatively portrayed as somehow a part of this to people who are ignorant or do not, you know, have proper education. Um, we know in the States that there are white people who have started to murder Muslim people over what is going on in the Middle East. I know people personally who have been chased in the streets here in Toronto for simply being brown. And we can only assume that it is, Th this incident heightening racism towards them. When we were in Moncton, there was a protest, um, a peaceful protest of people of Gaza in the city, like Moncton, front of Moncton City Hall, um, peacefully demonstrating and trying to, you know, rally and show solidarity. There have been some here as well on both sides. There has been uh, allegedly groups of Palestinians or people supporting that are actually, you know, calling for violence and also groups that are calling for peace. Um, I know Jewish people and Jewish families who kept their kids home from school in fear that things would happen to them and that their kids would be harmed. Um, and uh, to be honest, it was really, really hard for us, I think, to make this episode or for me to even say that I, I wasn't sure that this would be a good idea I've had so many people in my life say that there is a need to say something because silence is complicity. I've also had a lot of people, you know, attack other people for seeming to choose a side or seeming to not choose a side. And it really seems like in the eyes of the world, there isn't going to be a right answer, whether we say something or we don't at all. Um, so at this point, we might as well just say something. Um, yeah. And all I can really say is that I so desperately wish we lived in a world where there was peace and I just don't know that we ever will. And it's um, when I walked past the demonstration for Palestine in Moncton, I started crying because it's so weird that when I left eight years ago, I don't know that there would have been that many people of Palestinian descent in Moncton. And then also doubly weird to be thinking that we are somehow 2023 facing these types of conflicts. Um, yeah. And so it was just very sad. Well, I want, I want to speak about peace. Um, I got my eyes on the clock here. I want to speak yeah. about peace. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm saddened. I, I've, I've almost come to tears many times, to be honest with you. Uh, I, I know many Muslim parents and many, many parents of, uh, you know, Jewish origin children are very afraid right now to send their kids to school and other things because of the news. 
But when we speak about peace traditionally and a call for peace, I mean, who is that peace for? And what, what does that peace look like? You know, after George Floyd was murdered um, and, you know, there was calls for peace. Uh, and then because people were rioting, I, you know, we weren't even rioting that much. And I, I, because there were protests and march all over, marches all over the world, that meant that we were not seeking peace. Um, so peace is only good for the oppressor or the controlling power if uh, that peace means that the people who are being compressed, oppressed, nothing changes. Uh, what, what good is that peace if, there is not, if there's no equality in a society? Um, so when we say for peace in the Middle East, what does that mean? Does that mean that the people trapped in the Gaza Strip should continue to be trapped in the Gaza Strip? And again, this is not a myth. Like They are trapped. Um, I know that Hamas doesn't exist in the West Bank, which is the other area in what used to be Palestine that... Um, that is, you know, in, over there where there is no Hamas, which is the political ruling party in Gaza, over there, Palestinians, their land, and this is not myth, their land is regularly being annexed and taken from them uh, to be given to, you know, Europeans or other people that move over there. And what is the point of peace if nothing ever changes? You know, after all the dust settled from the George Floyd marches, um, did anything change? We often say on the show, well, not really. A lot of people were scared. A lot of people made promises. Some things changed, but not much. And, uh, you know, if I lived in a country where we were 100% controlled by another country, let's say in Canada, we're 100% controlled by America. We couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't go to my friend's house. I couldn't go to work. I couldn't go to school. I had to spend hours of every day in checkpoints. Uh, my friends were regularly being killed and I was just under complete control. And, you know, eventually the Canadian government had enough and they attacked America. Uh, and as a result of that attack, you know, America decided to bomb the entire province of New Brunswick and they justified it, even though I had no say in that, even though I wasn't involved in the war, I wasn't involved in the politics or the government of that happening. But just because of something that happened, um, we bombed the whole, bombed the whole province of New Brunswick. I mean, that's, that's, that's another parallel that I see. Like it just wouldn't be fair. Uh, I want peace as well, but what would that peace look like? Would that peace mean that for us, for, if, so would peace after the George Floyd murder, would that mean that we all just accept what happened, go back to our ways, not speak out about systemic racism, not try to improve the education system, not try to seek more equity and equality and inclusion in these spaces that we were in? Um, I don't understand how when Russia annexes land in Ukraine, Russia is Russia's not allowed to do that. That's an atrocity. Um, but when it's well documented and not denied by the people in power over there that that is what's happening, that land is being annexed on a regular basis in the West Bank, it's all honky-dory and it's all okay. Um, during, the last thing I'll say, is during slavery, humans were considered uh, black people were only considered two-thirds human under the law. And during indigenous schools, indigenous people were referred to as savages, you know, not human savages. During the Holocaust, people were referred to as rats. And uh, day two of this 
conflict, October 8th, I saw the IDF defense minister go on TV and refer to Palestinians as human animals. And I just didn't understand how we're all okay with this in 2023. I see that we're almost at a time. But when a society successfully dehumanizes a population, it's always easier for the public to accept the oppression and, and killing or eradication of its people. Uh, and that's, that's a big thought that I want to leave with people. <laughs> um, you know, if we let the me media influence us too much, then we, we dehumanize. It's so much easier to kill a mosquito than a human. And I feel that's what the media, I'm not talking about Israel, that's what the media is doing. You got 10 More seconds, Hillary. More on this in another week, I think. Sure. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Post your comments. Bye. Bye.